Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Andrew Klein. He is Director of Public Policy for the National Cannabis Industry Association. We're going to talk with him a little bit about uh, what's going on in the cannabis space uh, in terms of policy and kind of the government regulation, federal, state, and how things are shaping up. Just for reference, we're recording this the end of April. And so we are in the midst of our COVID-19 pandemic, obviously impacting not only business, but really everyone in the world right now. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about how, you know, the cannabis industry has responded, kind of what's the state of cannabis right now, how things are playing out, and then how this is going to kind of reshape the industry, reshape the agenda for the cannabis industry uh, in the coming months and quarters and, and most likely years. So I'm excited to have this. Uh, obviously, it's a you know, horrible situation we're in from a pandemic point of view, but fascinating from an industry and business point of view and how things are playing out. Uh, a lot of interesting responses from the states and how companies are kind of keeping the business going, keeping the industry going. But, uh, you know, it is impacting things. So with all of that, Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah. So let's find out a little bit more about you and your background. How did you get into cannabis? How did you get into public policy? Give us the backstory. Sure. So I, you know, spent most of my career kind of bouncing back and forth between law and policy. I was a federal prosecutor for about 14 years back in D.C. and also did a stint on the Senate side of the Senate Judiciary Committee working for then Senator Biden in the late 90s did some policy work for him when he was VP, did some policy work at the FCC, and also led global policy for the GoDaddy operating group before yep. they became a publicly traded company. So so I've been kind of you know in between law and policy for my whole career, and I was just kind of minding my own business um, <laughs> uh, working at the FCC and got a call from a recruiter asking me whether I might be interested in running a, a new self-regulatory organization for the cannabis industry. And so I ended up doing that for about a year and a half, which is how I got into the industry. And I've been with NCIA for about a year now. And what, what was it like to kind of go from these very kind of traditional established <laughs> kind of industry? I mean, you know, communications has been around forever to cannabis, which, um, well, you know, the industry has been around for a long time, you know, not on a legal side. How, what was it like? I would guess give us some of the insight in terms of, you know, as you got into cannabis, what was surprising? What was not surprising? What were the changes you had to make or uh, the things you weren't necessarily expecting? Yeah, you know, it's, I guess I didn't really know what to expect going in, but there have been some things that I've been very excited and pleased about and some things that I've found to be frustrating. On the exciting side, you know, this is, this is the it, democracy at its purest form, right? Yeah. Thomas Jefferson would be doing backflips if you could see you know, what's happening to this industry. And that's just super exciting to be a part of. You know, it's a new industry, but you've got some serious entrepreneurs and, you know, we're creating public policy from whole cloth, which is just crazy exciting for me as someone who loves doing this work. It's just, you know, having a blank slate, having, you know, major issues to work on like 280E and safe banking and descheduling yeah. has been super fun. You know, on the frustrating side, it's a new industry. It's the cannabis industry. And so, you know, not everyone is trying to go above and beyond what they're required to do and, you know, behave in a professional way. And so that mm -hmm. can get frustrating sometimes. Yeah. When we talk about crafting public policy, what are we really doing? I mean, with, with your position now, how do you wield your influence? What is the work that you do? Where do you spend your time? I mean, give a sense of really what it means to be in a position like this. So I lead something called the Policy Council, which is a group of about 35 right now, um, entrepreneurs, scientists, lawyers, doctors, and others who want to influence public policy in the industry. And together, we do a number of things. We produce white papers of import to the industry. So by way of example, last October, we released a white paper on how we think cannabis should be regulated at the federal level once descheduling happens. Mm -hmm. In January, we released a paper on safe vaping. I led a safe vape task force. And over three months, we did a lot of work trying to communicate authentically and on the deaths and injuries that were occurring as a result of the illicit market products. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of those white papers. We're in the process of finishing up a white paper on intellectual property, another one on the illicit market, and then another one on environmental sustainability. And then, I'm sorry, I missed one, interstate commerce. Yep. And then in the pipeline, we have a paper on taxes, a paper on ethics, a paper on gender parity, 
and a paper on the medicine of cannabis. So the white papers take up quite a bit of time, but we do a lot of other work as well. For instance, we do file public comments. So right now we're working on comments to the DEA on research. We're working on comments to NIDA on dosing. Mm-hmm. A few months ago, we submitted comments to the FDA on CBD rulemaking. So that work is ongoing. We also support our government relations team. So we draft legislation. We provide technical assistance to congressional staffers. We interpret legislation and put things into plain English. We uh, opine on whether new pieces of law or existing pieces of law make sense or whether we want to think about modifications or amendments. We produce some events. So in February, I produced an illicit market summit where I brought together law enforcement, state, local, and, and federal law enforcement with cannabis entrepreneurs, both multi-state operators and, and some craft companies, technology companies, and social equity experts to talk about the illicit market and how the private sector and the public sector can start to collaborate to try to stamp out what is a, a problem for for consumers, a problem for license holders, and a problem for law enforcement. So that's at a high level kind of what we work on. You know, the nitty gritty kind of changes from day to day, but there's so much going on. It's not like there's a lack of work. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the, the purpose or the intent of all this is to really create a well-regulated, successful, profitable industry that is, you know, serving sort of the benefit of consumers and general kind of good of public health. Exactly. And so yeah. we're, we're creating a library. Once cannabis is descheduled, the federal government's not going to really know what to do. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're creating a library of research um, and writing for them to rely on. Interesting. And sort of coming out of 2019 or the end of the tail end of 2019, coming into 2020, what was kind of on your agenda, you know, in 2020, 2021? What were the kind of top things that you hoped that would be addressed or that you saw coming down the pike? So personally, my agenda was has always been descheduling. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of myopically focused on that and finding you know a path for us, whether it's on the MORE Act or, or something else. You know, simultaneously, we do work uh, on the in- more incremental approaches. So, mm-hmm. you know, safe banking is always at the forefront of our priorities. 280E is always at least in the back of our mind, but there hasn't been a, a vehicle to pursue tax reform other than the Trump tax package, which we did try to get 280 included and we're not successful. So So that was kind of the agenda. Uh, Obviously, we're in the midst of this pandemic and, you know, things sort of kind of impacting business, you know, six, eight weeks ago as, um, you know, orders started to come down from governors and municipalities that uh, shelter in place, kind of shut down non-essential businesses. But as as we've seen, cannabis has been deemed essential business. And I think eight of the nine areas where the adult uses in place, and I think most of the medicals have all been deemed essential services, essential businesses. From a policy point of view, how what's your take on how this has played out? Have you What have you been surprised by? Uh, do you think that, I guess, what do you like in terms of how things have played out? And maybe where are you critical of how people have kind of treated cannabis in this situation? By and large, uh, you know, everyone who has a program has deemed cannabis essential one way or the other, right? They may not have used that exact language, but they're either allowing both recreational and medical or just medical. They're allowing curbside. They're allowing delivery. But everyone is doing something. Like there, there isn't a state that has a medical program that isn't offering cannabis in some way. So that's a big win, I think, for the industry. And, and I think a sign that uh, things are headed in a very positive direction. You know, look, at the same time, 
not only have states been deeming cannabis essential, but the federal government has done nothing you know, <laughs> exactly. to move the ball forward. So, yeah. And that has applied during the COVID uh, relief packages just as, as much as it has applied yeah. elsewhere. I mean, on the, on the relief packages, you know, we've been really busy trying to lobby for, for SBA loans and grants and also for safe banking. And we're now, what, about to enter phase five, I think. Right. Yeah. I think there have been. This is going to be the fifth relief package, and so we're hoping we're going to get something in this time. But so far, Congress has balked. You know, and, and it's frustrating because we're we're operating in, a, in an all cash environment. Cash is dirty. We're operating in parking lots, and, and cash it's dangerous to be exchanging cash in parking lots. Yeah. So we need banking, and you know, we're, we're we did twelve billion dollars in annual sales last year. Like we're doing more than most other industries to help financially, and so like why shouldn't we be treated the same? As other industries, why should they be eligible for loans, but, yeah. but we're not? Why do you think that is? I mean, what, what is really the kind of the blocker or the, the thing that's holding this up on the federal side? It's a great question. I look at this through sort of a biased view, probably because I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a lifelong Democrat. But if you really look at things, right, I mean, the Democrats passed safe banking in the House by an overwhelming margin. The Democrats yeah. passed the Moore Act through the House Judiciary Committee. And the Republicans have done nothing. They've been, you know, not moving at all on safe banking. And so I hate to sort of politicize it, but it does feel to me like if the Democrats were in charge of the White House and the Senate, that things would look very differently than they do right now. Is this just an underlying real kind of belief issue or policy issue? Or is this, you know, looking at re-elections and constituents and, you know, how is this going to look there? I mean, I'm I'm just curious if, if when it really comes down to the debates and the votes that are being cast or not being cast is this kind of mechanics in that they just, they don't have, while they personally may feel like this is a good thing to do, they just, it's just not ready from a constituent point of view, from a public kind of opinion point of view, or, or is it just, there's other things on, you know, on their minds or other things they have to get done. And so this doesn't make it onto the agenda or doesn't, you know, doesn't get the political force that it needs to, to really pass. Yeah. I, so I think it really has to do much more with individual personalities than anything else. So you know, if you look yeah. at most recent uh, Gallup polls and Quinnipiac polls, medicinal cannabis polls at 90% and recreational cannabis polls at 66%. Yeah. So, and you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find any public policy issue that's polling <laughs> with that. Yeah. So I don't think it's the politics. I think it's Mitch McConnell and Mike Crapo who have yeah. antiquated views. And, you know, just like we, we saw with impeachment and other issues that have arisen, sometimes I think Mitch McConnell is not thinking, hey, what's in the best interest of the country or, or what do the, my constituents want? It's more about his political future, or his viability or his own personal preferences. So yeah. that's my suspicion. Yeah. So until there's some real kind of seismic shift in the power structure there, it's going to be a tough process. I think so. I mean, you know, look, I guess time will tell, right, over the next few months, you know, is it possible that, that McConnell will decide to move safe banking? I guess it's possible. I really don't understand what the delay is, right? I mean, you've got the American Bankers Association yeah. and all these, you know, mainstream organizations supporting safe banking. Like, there's no there's no political downside for him. Yeah. You know, the only downside is whether or not he believes that cannabis should be legalized or, or normalized. Yeah. Well, and you're not going to, I mean, it just, the, the, the tide is 
shifting. <laughs> it's, it's not like you're going to put it back in the bottle. So right. it just seems it's, it does seem silly to to hold that up when holding it up actually causes real issues, and not not just for the industry, but really for the general public. And banking becomes complicated. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be any real helpful side of not doing it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So how else do you see this kind of playing out in terms of changing the agenda or how is this whole kind of COVID thing going to, you know, change the agenda, shape the industry, you know, change businesses, impact businesses in the coming weeks, months, quarters, you know, like I said, probably years at this point. But how do you see this kind of impacting things? Well, I guess my hope is that Congress will look and, and see, I, I'm not an economist, but I've got to imagine that in light of the fact that you know these states are spending incredible amounts of money on healthcare right now, and they're not collecting any tax revenue, that they're going to be in a world of hurt pretty mm-hmm. soon. And yeah. you look around at the industries that are doing well; cannabis is one of a handful. So I'm hoping that's going to be a signal that you know, hey, it's time to really you know let unleash the cannabis industry and, and let them really thrive. But I, I don't know, you know, that that's g- g- going to be the case on the. On the COVID side, I tend to think that cannabis companies are going to start to have to take good manufacturing practices more seriously. So, yeah. you know, there are some already that go above and beyond what they're required to do. They're looking to the future when FDA regulates, you know, food and, and dietary supplements and, and pharmaceuticals and such containing cannabis. You know, they're going to require good manufacturing practices. So smart companies are getting ahead of the game and, and they're just saying, you know what, we're going to do this now. We're not required to, but we're going to do it. And to me, that they're the ones that are going to have a business advantage because if you're a consumer and you know, you're concerned about products getting tainted, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to be asking those tough questions. And is that, I mean, uh, that, I guess, how do you see the kind of the regulatory structure coming down. I mean, the FDA is going to be the entity in charge of this, but how are they going to go about doing this? Is this basically the same they would do any other industry? Is there anything unique about cannabis in terms of the strategy they're going to have to use or the process or the regulations themselves? So this is probably a a question for another podcast because it's a long, drawn-out story. (laughs) But, you know, last October we issued a regulatory plan which – bestowed upon FDA and TTB, which is the tobacco trade office that manages alcohol in the Department of Treasury. And so, you know, our theory was we should be regulating cannabis like alcohol, not like tobacco, but like alcohol. There should be the state system should remain in place, right? So Mm -hmm. one of the concerns I have with some of the proposals that we've seen to reschedule is, you know, what would that mean to the state legal system? We really want to make sure we retain those systems that are working for consumers. They're driving revenue for the states. The states have already figured this out. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to recreate the wheel. But the federal government has a role to play in, you know, inspecting facilities, making sure that good manufacturing practices are occurring. And so, you know, I do see a role for FDA, particularly on the non-intoxicating side. So mm-hmm. on the pharmaceutical CBD side, Epidiolex and, and Marinol, et cetera. Yeah. And then also on topicals and patches and dietary supplements. On the high THC side, the you know, 0.3 and above, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's a role for the TTB to play, making sure that the states are doing what they're supposed to be doing, that people are, you know, not making false claims, their advertising is not appealing to children, they're not selling to children, 
you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, how does that look? Because as we ponder kind of this uh, delisting federal legalization of the industry, how do you see kind of the states responding to this? We've States has put a lot of money and energy into these local markets and economy and licenses and regulating and setting these up. Do you see this really opening up on the federal side and that we'll see states that some states are going to be great growers, some states are going to be great processors, and you'll have a really fluid federal, you know, federal industry or or national industry on this? Or do you see the states kind of keeping some amount of control and maintaining sort of their economies within their borders? You know, it's a great question. And I, I don't know that I can accurately read the tea leaves quite yet. But, you know, on the interstate commerce side, there's no reason, you know, w- once cannabis is descheduled, I don't know why, you know, people in New York or Massachusetts wouldn't want the best cannabis grown in California, Oregon, or Washington, or Colorado coming east, especially if it saves them millions of dollars potentially in build out, right? Because when you're growing cannabis outside, you're not investing in the same kind of hydroponics and lighting and greenhouses that you are on the East Coast. So you're saving a ton of money and you're getting better product, you know, that's grown outside Humboldt Mm -hmm. County, for instance, right? Yeah. So I would hope that businesses would want to facilitate interstate commerce. I think it would benefit everybody. Yeah, but for the company that has uh, <laughs> done a big greenhouse build out in Vermont to be able to grow, <laughs> grow cannabis there, yeah. they're going to have to figure out how to transition at some point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the interesting thing from a business strategy point of view that I've seen is this question, you this looming question of what happens when you get federal legalization and how does it change the the markets and address you know the addressable consumer and where you grow, how you grow, where you process all those things. You know, in terms of how potentially these. These companies kind of fair. I mean, you've, you've, a lot of companies were fairly extended. They were, you know, raising a lot of capital to grow and scale quickly. You know, with COVID, capital markets are, you know, a little uh, shy right now in terms of being able to continue to kind of fuel that kind of growth. You know, I think it remains to be seen, you know, what will happen in terms of availability of, of debt and equity financing on these businesses to the extent that some of these businesses don't make it or get into a distressed state. You know, normally in an industry, you'd have kind of a merger and acquisition process. Things would get rolled up, assets would get sold, people would buy licenses. But, you know, in this case, it's, I'm not sure. I just, I don't see exactly how some of these assets get sold with the kind of regulatory restrictions, the lack of capital in this space already. I mean, I guess from your kind of policy point of view, how do you see kind of the policies that are in place on the state kind of affecting how businesses are going to have to respond to kind of correct their financial situation? Should they be you know, in financial trouble in the coming months as things play out. Was the question about what what the states should be doing or about what companies should be doing? I think both. I mean, is there anything the states can do to help companies that are in financial distress, right? You're going to have companies that are, are affected by this, that are that are not able to maintain kind of their financial position and, and they're going to be distressed, but there's regulations around how many licenses you can hold, who can hold a license, you know, things like that, that are going to make it difficult for these people to find decent exits or reasonable exits to maintain, you know, asset value. I mean, do you think there should be, the state should be doing things to help deal with that on within their markets and and help these distressed businesses? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there are some things that states can do. Number one, for instance, the governor of Colorado recently sent a letter to the congressman who represents uh, Denver asking for SBA loans for cannabis businesses in Colorado. So, There's certainly work that they can do there. The states themselves can offer small business loans. There was an article recently in Forbes magazine 
written by Adam Warrens from the uh, Marijuana Policy Group. Mm-hmm. And it lays out a plan for municipal bonds backed by cannabis, which I thought was a really interesting yeah. approach. So look, you know, I think people are thinking creatively about it, but none of us should be resting on our laurels because, you know, this is a new industry and, and we yeah. need to propel it, not, not hinder it. Yeah, exactly. It's a, in some respects, it's like the worst timing. <laughs> yeah. We've gotten kind of gotten off the ground. We had some pretty good momentum. Things started happening. You know, there was, I think, some real, you know, inertia towards getting some of these uh, reforms in place. And then, you know, this pandemic hits. And I think it, it has derailed a lot of this stuff or at least pushed it back. I mean, in terms of some of these, not even a federal <laughs> legalization, but even just the, the 280E and the banking reform, I mean, uh, I think a lot of people were hoping it was going to be in 2020, or at least there was going to be some pretty big movement in 2020. Do you think that's still going to happen? Do you think that's pushed out? Is that 21? Is it 22? I mean, what's your kind of sense of timing on some of these things, given kind of the focus and, you know, how disruptive the pandemic has been? On the Hill? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just I just saw a few minutes ago that the Senate was supposed to be coming back into the session and, and the House decided that they were not going to come back into session. So it's not clear to me, you know, when the federal government's even going to be up and running again. Yeah. And, you know, once this COVID relief is behind us, they're going to be pretty far back, right, in their legislative priorities. And I hate to be keep harping on Mitch McConnell, but he has not exactly shown interest in passing legislation over the last three years. He's been more interested in judges getting confirmed. And so, you know, once the COVID relief packages are behind us, there's going to be a long line of of legislation that that people want to see hit the floor. I imagine cannabis will be far behind in his priorities. So long story short, I'm not particularly optimistic that much is going to happen in 2020. I think it's going to mean a new president and a new Senate that's going to really translate into the kind of policy that we want to see implemented. Yeah. Andrew, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Sure. Uh, If you get on our website, it's uh, thecannabisindustry.org. Click on policy and then policy council. You can see the library of work that we've produced. Uh, You'll see a four-page description of how you can become a member you can see the the bios and uh, headshots of all the current members. And you can always shoot me an email at andrew at thecannabisindustry.org. Happy to talk. Yeah, I'll make sure that those are in the show notes so people can get that information. Uh, this has been a pleasure. I, you know, Policy is such a huge factor in how this industry is kind of shaped both historically and will be in the future. So you know, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out. And I look forward to keeping in touch and kind of seeing how the pandemic impacts things and then how everyone responds, what happens with this election and kind of the future of cannabis. But I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.